unknown vessel, this is Wayland Utani Anchor Point Station. Please respond. Troop transport Sulaco. Return. New? Kid bit me! Don't touch me! Oh, don't touch her! Bishop. Hicks. Weapons Division intends to develop the alien. Audible Studios present Alien 3 by William Gibson, starring Michael Bean and Lance Henriksen. And welcome to the Slash Filmcast, the official podcast of SlashFilm.com. I'm David Chen, and with me is... Jeff Kanata. Uh, and Devinder Hardware is not here this week. Unfortunately, he's at CES. Jeff, have you been to CES before? Oh, yes. I have definitely been to CES. And I my my heartfelt uh, condolences are with Dave, who is... Or, excuse me, not Dave. With Devindra, <laughs> who is uh, clearly not sleeping probably uh fried on having to run from giant hall to giant hall uh seeing all kinds of tech going to press conferences it's a it's a very difficult show to cover and i'm sure he is uh uh burning the candle at both ends this whole week Mm. our hearts are with him and uh you know i'll be shocked if we ever see him again jeff to be honest with you but hopefully (laughs) he makes it back uh but we miss devendra and uh you can read all his coverage of ces at engadget.com he'll be back next week hopefully in devendra's place joining us today uh for not necessarily the first time but the first time on an official episode is uh my fiance who you may know is at joy of napping on twitter uh, and for the duration of this episode, uh, we shall refer to her as Joy, for short. How are you doing today, Joy? I'm well. You know, to be clear, I'm not like the Joy from Blade Runner. I'm not like an AI. Yeah. I'm an actual, yeah. You know what? It's actually really human. really good that you mentioned that because with Dave, you never know. And, uh, <laughs> and I, but I do have to point out uh, that is exactly what an AI would say. Mm. Indeed, indeed. Uh, well, it's great to have Joy with us today, especially because today the movie we're going to be reviewing is I, Tanya, and Joy is literally the biggest fan of women's figure skating that I know in my entire life and has an encyclopedic knowledge of it. So uh, she's the perfect guest for today's episode of the podcast. Uh, you can find more episodes of this show at slashfilmcast.com. You can also email us at slashfilmcast.gmail.com. Uh, today, we're just going to talk about the Golden Globes really quick and then dive into our review of I, Tanya. So I anticipate it will be a shorter episode than usual. But before we get to that, uh, last week on this podcast, uh, we covered our top 10 films of the year. And sometimes in our enthusiasm, we may overlook some movies. Uh, and I wanted to call out this email from Vanessa H., who writes into slashfilmcast.gmail.com. Uh, it should perhaps go without saying that the last year and a half have been pretty rough for women. The ugliness exposed by the 2016 election will not soon be healed or forgotten. But in the midst of that darkness, there were some bright spots, many centering on the entertainment industry. The exposure of abuses committed by Harvey Weinstein and other top and lower tier entertainment figures and the galvanizing hashtag MeToo movement brought sexual harassment victims and allies together. And many men, including you three, seemed earnestly to take up the question, how can we be better? This year also marked a few notable accomplishments for women in film. 
One, Wonder Woman was the highest grossing film of the summer, garnering over $400 million domestically. It made more than Captain America Civil War, Guardians of the Galaxy, or any of the Iron Man films. Two, Girls Trip, a comedy exclusively featuring women of color, cracked the top 10 summer box office and made well over $100 million. Three, Colossal, while not a wide release, provided a fantastic and empowering volley against the metaphoric and literal monster that is toxic masculinity. Four, Atomic Blonde gave us a convincing and non-exploitative uh, exploitative female 007. Five, Lady Bird gave us a female coming-of-age story written and directed by a female director and is doing pretty well by pretty much every metric. These accomplishments fly in the face of so much of the rhetoric that has been used to sideline women in film, that a female superhero wouldn't be marketable, that minority women don't generate enough box office for studios to bother catering to them, that a serious female spy wouldn't be convincing, and that people just aren't interested in the experiences of women as told by women. My issue is not that you did not cram your top ten list with these movies, but rather that with the exception of Lady Bird, which did make each of your lists, people listening to your episode would not even know that these movies existed in 2017. Numbers one through four were not mentioned in your discussion of the movie Year in Review, uh, nor were they discussed in any of your honorable mentions lists, nor in any context or capacity. This would be understandable if these were obscure films, but except for Girls Trip, these are all movies that you reviewed on the podcast. What's the deal? I thought this was a pretty significant year for women in film, but no one listening to your top 10 episode would get that message. Thanks for reading. End quote. That comes in from Vanessa H., writing into slash filmcast.gmail.com. Uh, and that is a fair critique. Uh, we neglected to mention uh, what an amazing year women in film had, uh, and that is our bad, and we are copping to it and mentioning it now by reading this email uh, and saying, sorry about that. I, I do think that it was a, a huge oversight that when we talked about trends of the year, we certainly talked about the Weinstein issue, which which I think dominated the the year as far as a trend but uh a, a much more positive well it's that is a kind of a positive thing in a, in a in a sense that this this uh, kind of uh, behavior is being uh outed now but i think even more positive is the way this e- emailer frames things and, and showing some of the successes of uh female helmed female starring and female narrative uh movies of the year i, I think you're she's right you're right in bringing it up that uh we should have um, mentioned that and made that a bigger deal about that. I will point out that Lady Bird was on all of our lists. We, we all loved that. And my number one movie uh, is about a female butting up against the male patriarchy. So I would add three billboards to the list of movies that our emailer mentioned um, as one that I think is of the year <laughs> in that theme. Yeah, I think uh, also uh, the top – this has been pointed out a few times. The top three domestic grossing films of the year were Star Wars The Last Jedi, Beauty and the Beast, and Wonder Woman, uh, all of which are movies that uh, have female leads, which is uh, pretty remarkable. Like they did – these movies did incredibly well. If I could just add that, you know, I don't know if it was a particularly good year for women in film as opposed to other years, but I think it is a really nicely crafted message to put together this kind of case or this highlight reel so that we can think about the things that did go well and try to build from them for next year. Um, we're on, I'm really looking forward to A Wrinkle in Time, directed by Ava DuVernay, the live-action Mulan, which I believe also has a female director. Um, and as we're thinking back on 2017, the other piece I would add um, is Big Little Lies. Although it wasn't directed by a woman, it's based on a story written by a woman and then championed by two women, Nicole Kidman and Reese Witherspoon. And then, of course, was a story about 
you know, five or six women and the relationships between them. And I think really resonated with an awful lot of people as a result um, of the nuance and the texture that they brought. Uh, so anyway, yeah, I uh, really appreciate the email and would just add big little lies as even though it's not a movie, like part of this bigger story that we saw last night at the Golden Globes of celebrating uh, broader kinds of storytelling. Indeed. Yeah, certainly, certainly my favorite TV show of the year as well, man. Big Little Lies, phenomenal, phenomenal limited series. And I'm so interested to see how the heck they're going to do a season two of that show. It's it's going to be interesting. I mean, yeah, they definitely left the door open for a season two at the end of that show. But it, it will be interesting to see because uh, most of season one revolved around a single event that was very... Sing, a uh, single mystery, yeah, even. Yeah, a single mystery, yeah. that's right, yeah. Um, but, you know, that brings up a good point, which is something we didn't have a chance to talk about on last week's podcast is other things that we saw that we really appreciated that weren't necessarily movies. Uh, and Jeff Kanata, you had brought up like Vietnam was something that you really appreciated, right? Very much so. Yeah, it's uh, incredible work and one that contextualizes that time period in a way I'd never seen. I mean, my parents lived through it um, and obviously I haven't lived through it, but you hear about it because you know, you're the just one generation removed from that experience, but seeing it and having, uh, the way that, that miniseries dealt with both sides of the story, it's not just from an American perspective. It is also from the Vietnamese perspective and you kind of see what, what is going on on a macro level between the two countries and starting so far back in time and building up and really seeing all of the, events that conspired to create that quagmire it's 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 an amazing work an amazing work uh the only other things i wanted to shout out you know were uh i didn't have a chance to mention nathan for you which is uh one of the things i was able to watch uh while i was on break from the podcast and the the season finale of Nathan for You in particular, possibly series finale of Nathan for You, I just thought was an extraordinary piece of work in its own right. It's called Finding Francis. Errol Morris wrote a lovely piece about it in the New York Times. Um, you had a chance to watch Nathan for You, Jeff Kanata? No, I haven't. Uh, I, w- I would recommend it. I think it's something you'd appreciate. So. Mm. Uh, and yeah, I, I, I mean, I think those are just a couple of things that, you know, I, we, I watched, uh, Black Mirror the entire season, the day it came out. Uh, so that's technically in 2017 and we will talk <laughs> about Black Mirror at some point in the future. Um, but yeah, that was another thing that I, I really appreciated as well. I, I don't marathon or binge that many shows these days, but Black Mirror is definitely, uh, one of the ones that did I we get, mentioning. was did we get two seasons of Black Mirror in 2017 or was that 2016 that the last one? I think, yeah, 2016 was the last one, is, is yeah, my okay. recollection. It was like around the same time, like end of the year 2016, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that's right. I think that's right. Um, I love the idea of it as like an annual holiday tradition yeah. to like yeah. spend some time soaking in dystopia with your family. Yeah, it was, it was like fall of 2016. <laughs> you mean more than, more than I'm normally soaking in dystopia with my family. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Uh, all right. And I'm trying to think if, if there's anything else – uh, worth mentioning that was kind of like a big thing that was watched in 2017. But uh, I, mean, I think Stranger Things is that is that thing for a lot of people. Um, did you get into Stranger Things season two, Jeff? No, I didn't. I have not watched season two. Nor, um, I don't. I don't know why I'm just not compelled. <laughs> but I'm not. It's it's just not something that like really resonates with us. I don't think. 
yeah. and by us I mean everyone on the podcast right now. So, a uh, <laughs> couple of other things I want to mention. A couple of Netflix shows I wanted to mention. American Vandal turned out to be much smarter than I gave her credit for after I watched the first five minutes and then gave up initially. Uh, and I just found it to be not only hilarious but a very insightful look into the relationship between journalist and subject that uh, I really appreciated. It. It's on Netflix. It's American Vandal. Uh, Jeff, have you seen the American Vandal yet? I started the first episode and it, I was uh, not not and I was not drawn into it. But yeah, I, I uh, understand that you have to kind of get over a hump with it. Yeah, I think Joy was kind of in the same boat. She watched a few minutes and was just like, uh, "This is not for me." But yeah. I, I kept going, and it was worth it. And I'm really excited excited for season two. So that was another show I watched the entire thing in two to three days. So. Really enjoyed that. And uh, BoJack Horseman, the new season of BoJack Horseman. Ah, so uh, amazing. Yeah. Amazing. Great, great season uh, of the show. And they continue to do new and interesting things with the characters. And so, um, yeah, just wanted to mention those other things as things that really made an impact on my, uh, on my year from a pop culture perspective. So, uh, okay. So that's the top ten episode. Now, before we get to our review today of I, Tanya, I wanted to just quickly mention – the Golden Globes, which uh, we all saw, at least in part, uh, they happened this past Sunday. Uh, and, I, you know, I, I think less or more, less or more than most awards ceremonies, it's really not worth getting too bent out of shape about who wins Golden Globes because uh, I just think they're not artistically a super interesting award ceremony, right? The, the awards are de- decided upon by the Hollywood Foreign Press Association, which is uh, a group of under 100 people with uh, not necessarily the most compelling qualifications to determine what is the best picture or not. Uh, but uh, like c- compared to the Emmys or the Oscars, which are voted upon by uh, peers that actually work in those fields. Um, so I-, I don't take the awards too seriously. But what is Interesting about this ceremony, or well, first of all, whoever does win the awards, it is used as a marketing uh, piece of content. Like it's it's used as marketing content to say Golden Globe Award winning blank. Uh, it it kind of gives some movies a shot in the arm from a box office and marketing perspective. Um, so that's interesting to consider. And also, of course, the ceremony itself. Uh, their stuff happens at the ceremony. Speeches are, are said and there's crazy moments that occur and they become part of pop culture uh, on their own. So it's worth noting for, for those reasons. Well, it's just the looser format. People are seated at round tables and they're heavily liquored up. Um, so <laughs> I think people typically... are pretty liquored at the Oscars too. <laughs> My understanding is things get a little bit wackier at the Golden Globes, but not having attended, I cannot vouch. So, Joy, uh, you watched pretty much the entire Golden Globe ceremony. Was there anything that you thought was particularly notable about this year's ceremony? Yeah, I did. You know, um, I actually was not particularly interested in watching it prior to the ceremony, partly because, as you're saying, it's, um, you know, that the taste of the Golden Globe voters is a little bit all over the place. And it's not particularly predictive of the Oscars. Um, however... I start seeing this sort of hashtag times up and, you know, like that all the actresses are wearing black uh, on my Twitter timeline. And I realize, oh, this is kind of like a thing. Maybe I should turn it, tune in and see how they address this really singular moment in the history of their industry. Um, 
And I was really pleasantly surprised that it wasn't people simply mouthing a couple of platitudes throughout the night, but that it actually felt almost like a piece of programming that had its own emotional journey within it. Absolutely, you know, punctuated by that thunderclap of a speech by Oprah Winfrey. Um, but, you know, lots of people had lots of things to say. Um, and I greatly enjoyed hearing from different folks. Honestly, I wish I had heard from more men about the topic during the night. Um, Seth Meyers did some of that, uh, but mostly it was women talking. Um, and that's, there's no, nothing wrong with that, obviously. Um, so I found it overall really refreshing. Yeah, Jeff, were there any moments from the ceremony that really resonated with you? Oh, many. Uh, it's hard to top Oprah's speech, as Joy Which mentioned. Which brings me to this. What I know for sure is that speaking your truth is the most powerful tool we all have. And I'm especially proud and inspired by all the women who have felt strong enough and empowered enough to speak up and share their personal stories. Each of us in this room are celebrated because of the stories that we tell. And this year, we became the story. But it's not just a story affecting the entertainment industry. It's one that transcends any culture, geography, race, religion, politics, or workplace. So I want tonight to express gratitude to all the women who have endured years of abuse and assault because they, like my mother, had children to feed and bills to pay and dreams to pursue. Just an incredibly composed, incredibly delivered, um, incredibly eloquent thing to say. It, it is just an, a magic moment of uh, really capturing what everyone wished they had the words to enunciate and, and what a, the perfect voice to do it. Um, I don't know. It, it, obviously, we've gotten this fallout of sort of political overtones from it, but I, I'd rather... I, I feel like we've of, lived five news cycles since yeah. uh, the Every day speech happened. Five, every day is five news cycles. <laughs> um, but, but, but first, there is, there is the... Uh, the Oprah, Oprah gave her speech. It brought down the house. It was an incredible speech. Uh, you know, it got dusty in the room. And then immediately, there was the speculation that maybe she's going to run for president. And then well, there's all these people... Uh, spe speculating on whether that would be a good idea. Why would Oprah? You know, there's already like the backlash to Oprah being president, and then there's like the backlash to the backlash. Or like all in the last 24 hours, I've experienced this. On this is online. the world we live in now, Dave. This is how it. This is how it happens. Um, the backlashes come like waves crashing against the beach, one after another. Uh, but I think all of that was was established. I mean. Seth Meyer, who I think actually did a really excellent job. I loved his opening monologue. I thought it was Agreed. fantastic in an impossible situation. You know, like it, it, he, he was great. But he also made the joke well before Oprah, you know, hours before <laughs> Oprah took the stage. He made the joke about her running for president. So I think that was already sort of in the air. Uh, and then, of course, the speech itself felt so soaring. And, um, you know, she has this this wonderful uh, dawn of a new day line that just feels like a political uh, mantra or, or uh, you know, trademark line along the lines of, yes, we can. So it, it has that feeling to it. So I can understand why people 
got that from it, but I prefer to just listen to the the content and not sort of uh, get swept up in the style and the the horse race of potential, you know, 2020 uh, nonsense. And I think that that does a disservice to really what she was saying, which is this really powerful thing. I, I completely agree. I, I found the, you know, Oprah, Oprah for president uh, sentiment to be, uh, to be honest, baffling, not because I don't think that she would uh, necessarily be a good president or that she wouldn't make it for a good presidential candidate. Like, I think those are uh, very much open questions that, that she plausibly has a case for. I mean, look at the world we live in where Donald Trump is the president. You know, if, if Donald Trump can be president, then Oprah can be president because I, have, I just have a suspicion that Oprah is a little bit more popular than Donald Trump. Trump right now. Uh, so I, I don't doubt her uh, ability to to become president or have a plausible shot at it. But uh, I just felt like the actual message of the speech got completely erased in uh, all the speculation afterwards, at least, you know, in the stuff that I was reading and in my Twitter timeline. Uh, I really appreciated Dahlia Lithwick's uh, article about this at Slate.com. She wrote uh, an article headlined Oprah's Real Message. It wasn't about her. It was about us. Quote, I have no idea whether Winfrey plans to run for the Oval Office in 2020. According to reports, she's actively considering it. But I heard the force and dignity of her speech as a mirror held up to the country about our own responsibilities, accompanied by a very prominent shout out to journalists for helping to tell those stories. This was a tribute to nameless women who have faced their own hashtag MeToo moments without receiving attention or justice. And for today's young black girls on linoleum floors who couldn't previously imagine themselves winning a Lifetime Achievement Award and woke up Monday thinking they just might. End quote. Uh, so yeah, I, I felt like it was this very inspirational speech about how, uh, like the importance of telling stories and how, um, seeing role models on the national stage can really motivate people to do great things. And, uh, that, that was my big takeaway from it. And, uh, I, I hope that people are able to watch that speech. Like you said, Jeff, appreciate the content of it. Uh, without necessarily wondering about her political aspirations. But who knows? Maybe she will run for 2020, and I will be proven completely wrong and naive in my statements. Um, Joy, what were you going to say? I just fear that this podcast is at the risk of spending all its time talking about the presidential angle and not the actual content. And so I do <laughs> want to say um, that I think she actually landed two messages really brilliantly. One is that we here in this room at the Golden Globes as entertainers and media figures have great responsibility in the sort of representation we put on the screen or um, into people's ears or in front of people's eyes or whatever. Um, but the second piece was that you individually at home have a responsibility to tell your story. Your story is valuable. You could have a horrific thing happen to you like Reese Taylor did and um, be raped and left for dead. But she chose to tell her story and pursue justice, which never came. But because she worked with Rosa Parks, um, you know, and Rosa Parks didn't give up on that case. Like, I, I think she is making that sort of long arc of history bends toward justice kind of argument that you may not see any change in your own situation or maybe even in your lifetime. Um, but the summation of all of those things is what um, is making the hashtag me Too movement powerful. And so for me as an individual, I found it incredibly inspiring and it, you know, had nothing to do with whether Oprah is going to get it, whatever she's going to do with herself and uh, political aspirations. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think the 
speech itself was inherently political in that it was encapsulating a a moment in time that is is political and one of the big lines from the speech that i found to be gobsmacking was this this notion of speaking your truth right it's not just not just tell your story not just stories are important but speak your truth because that is the most potent thing you have in your arsenal and i think that notion regardless of whether oprah is the vehicle to deliver it or any you know it, it, regardless of her political aspirations that is a i think um uniquely appropriate message for the moment in a in a time when fake like if fake was the word that defined 2017 i'm hoping truth is the word that defines 18 and beyond because um it's an important it's an important notion that that resonated very deeply with me this idea of stand there look them in the eye and speak the truth and i hope hope people took that away from the speech as well well said, both of you. Um, uh, before we move on, I also wanted to just call out the actual uh, awards themselves. There were a few interesting uh, events that occurred. Um, <laughs> first of all, uh, three billboards outside Ebbing, Missouri won big. Uh, best drama, Frances McDormand won for Best Actress. Um, Very pro- well deserved, I, I would say. Frances she did a great job, yeah, in that unbelievable. film. Unbelievable. Um, and I got po- a lot of messages, I must say, from Slash Film listeners who... Thought I was vindicated. I would just say that, Dave. Uh, okay, well, vindicated by the Hollywood, by the Foreign Hollywood Press, Foreign Press Association, is something you the most august <laughs> organization ever. Uh, the same organization that nominated Burlesque and the Tourist for Best Picture. Um, but uh, hey, there are dozens of them, Dave. Dozens. <laughs> there are literally dozens of Hollywood Foreign Press people. I'll take vindication wherever I can get it, Dave. We still need to have a big fight about that movie, Jeff. I'm not looking forward to it. But uh, <laughs> yeah. yeah, three billboards outside Ebbing, Missouri. Problematic. Anyway, uh, what else happened? Lady Bird won big. Best motion picture, musical, or comedy. Uh, and Saoirse Ronan. Best actress. Best actress, yeah, for Saoirse Ronan. Um, so wanted to call that out as well. And it led to another really uh, big and uh, oft-talked-about moment in the evening, which is when Natalie Portman introduced the Best Director category. And here are the all-male nominees. (laughs) For The Shape of Water, Guillermo del Toro. That provoked a lot of uh, reaction. Much of it positive, I think, because, you know, she's calling out the fact that uh, there is only males nominated in this category. Shortly after that, uh, Barbara Streisand took the stage uh, and mentioned how she's the only uh, female to have won the Best Director Golden Globe in the Golden Globe's history. Um, I thought uh, Scott Beggs on Twitter put this really well. He said, quote, backlash against Natalie Portman's scalpel-esque dig at the Globes is a classic macro slash micro problem. Macro. The system gives us all male nominees. Micro, but did these nominees deserve to be put on the spot? Uh, answer has to be yes, if the macro is ever going to be fixed. Uh, so anyway, that's Scott Beggs on Twitter talking about this issue. Yeah, I, I, I think he, he highlights the issue well, which is that maybe these directors didn't necessarily need to be put on the spot. But at the same time, if we don't call it out, uh, it will continue to be a systemic issue. Uh, Joy, what was your reaction to that moment, just out of curiosity? For me, it was actually one of 
20 moments in the night, I think, in which either people made scripted jokes or unscripted jokes about pay inequity between men and women or casting decisions. Um, one of the most shocking things I saw in the night actually was on the red carpet earlier. Deborah Messing uh, was being interviewed by Juliana Ranchich, I think, from uh, E! News. And I'm here to celebrate the rollout of this incredible initiative, Time's Up. You know, it, time, is up. time is up. And we want diversity. We want um, intersectional gender parity. We want equal pay. And I mean, you know, I was so shocked to hear that, that E! doesn't believe in paying their, their female co-hosts the same as their male co-hosts. I mean, I, I miss Kat Sadler. And um, so we stand with her. And that's something that can change tomorrow. You know, we want people to start having this conversation that women are just as valuable as men. Really put her on the spot. <laughs> and I thought, you know what? This is slightly different than other award shows. You know, like this really is feeling like a different night um, when people have sort of had it up to here. And when Oprah yells to everyone in the room, time's up. Like it really feels like a clarion call and not just like a slogan. And so, um, you know, I don't know that Natalie Portman's moments specifically stood out to me more than those others, but the uh, sort of um, accumulation of all of those together felt very powerful. Yeah. Uh, Emily Nussbaum actually also commented on the Natalie Portman moment. She said, quote, on Twitter, uh, the wild thing about Portman's gesture was the fabulous brass of it. By inserting those words into the award intro rather than into a winner's speech, she guaranteed that the next five shots would be the nominees' faces. I know the night's not over, but for me, Portman's was the climactic moment. Different from a red carpet statement or even one of the great speeches, a challenge to the etiquette of the whole occasion. Uh, end quote. So I think that's a pretty, you know, uh, uh, valid take on it. That it, it does kind of uh, upend the decorum in a lot of ways, and uh, I thought that was that was interesting to observe. So can I ask you a question, Joy? Uh, this may be a tangent we do not want to go down, <laughs> but I'm I'm curious what your take is. Do you think there should be a best male director and best female director category? And if not, do you think there should be just best acting performance category? I do think there should be just best acting performance. So um, there would be fewer nominees in total, right? Yes. Yeah. Yes. And um, I think part of the reason I... Uh, so that's maybe uh, a problem that if we solved it would create other problems. And I get that. Uh, there are trade-offs and uh, perhaps really undesirable ones. But I think in an ideal world, yes. And um, I think right now the percentage of uh, films directed by women is something on the order of 7%. Right. So uh, not only is it very low, you can imagine it skews super low budget and toward a certain kind of film that doesn't get as wide of a release as might get talked about on a podcast like this or you know broader attention. Well, yeah, um, I mean, uh, 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 Greta Gerwig was not even nominated, even though Lady Bird won for Best Picture, so uh, for comedy or musical. So, do you not think, and and I'm just throwing this out there as a possibility, do you not think having a Best Female Director category might actually help that problem? Yeah, so I think that's the trade-off, right? It's like a uh, probably incredible way to improve representation because the marketing that comes with, you know, having a best yada yada director or, uh, you know, these kinds of awards um, is really powerful. 
Um, on the other hand, it implies that the skill set is somehow different, which has right. always troubled me about the actor versus actress piece. And it's really noticeable that a lot of the best actress nominees are like um, wives of main characters. <laughs> like they were the biggest actress, but they weren't actually like a leading, like the leading protagonist in the film. Um, there's also sort of an artificial distinction between the lead and the supporting, right? And there's a lot of gamesmanship that goes on with that. So um, I agree with what you're saying that it would uh, solve certain things. Um, but to me, that could only be a stepping stone. Well, I'm looking at, I, I'm just having the discussion. I'm not trying to convince you or me either way. I, I don't know how I feel about it. Um, but I'm looking here at the best performance by an actress in a motion picture. I have not seen all the money in the world, but I've seen all the other films. Frances McDormand, Sally Hawkins in Shape of Water, Mel Streep in The Post, Jessica Chastain. None of them are just the wife in those performances. Uh, I would have to guess that if there was just a best performance in a film category, one or more of them would drop off the list um, in favor of, you know, a, a mixed bag of, of men and women. Uh, I agree with you that there is no distinction. I, I think Frances McDormand gives the best performance of any human being in this calendar year or really any other calendar year. Um, so clearly I, I would vote for her above any, any gendered human, but I think there is a case to be made. I understand that I'm sort of arguing for this weird segregationist perspective, which is not where I stand. But uh, if the purpose of these war awards or any award is to sort of surface greatness and shine the light of attention on deserved artistic, uh, you know, performances or endeavors wouldn't it be better to have more total nominees and actually know that you're going to get five women directors surfaced and, 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 uh, you know, front facing to an audience? Well, I actually think the strange thing is that the acting is the only gendered category. So we're not yeah. talking about best screenplay written by a woman. Right. And right. so I think that my assumption is that because these things are very heavily tied in with marketing, um, you know, the stars are the faces of the movies and they help sell the tickets. And so it's more important to have more representation or broader categories. And that's why we have not just an actor and actress, but a supporting actor and a supporting actress. And um, sometimes we even have ensemble awards. And so I assume that that is sort of driven partly by marketing from or lobbying from the studios of what kinds of things they want to see rewarded and how. I think it's an interesting thing to consider. I don't, I don't think there's an easy answer to it. I'm very um, interested in your take and other takes. I, I just, uh, I think it's a, it's a, it's clearly a problem and one that, that doesn't have an easy answer. If you're, if you're dealing with five, you know, five total directors uh, from what is it? 10 films. I mean, there's two film categories. It's not gendered mm -hmm. films, but it is genre films. And I don't know why there's only, you know, those get whittled down to an even smaller subset. It, it just seems problematic in and of itself from that perspective, too. Well, uh, I think you're right, Jeff. We, we could keep talking about this for, for a while. And it's, it's not just a problem that Golden Globes need to solve, you know. Uh, Oscars sure. and many other award ceremonies need to, need to consider how they're going to proceed along these paths as well. Um, but 
wanted to mention one final moment uh, that really stuck with me from the night, uh, which was the moment when James Franco won for Best Actor. Uh, I've been thinking about that. I feel very badly about this. I want to <laughs> what do you, what do you mean? In what sense? Well, I don't. You go ahead. I, I don't mean to cut you off. So uh, you know, a lot of people have been pointing to uh, James Franco's. Uh, troubled sexual history, which obviously is something that is a problem given the tenor of the evening. But uh, what was weird was he like he invited Tommy Wiseau up to stage and Greg Sestero was there. Um, and for those who don't know, uh, James Franco started in this movie called The Disaster Artist, which is about the making of a movie called The Room, widely regarded as one of the worst films of all time. The Room was uh, directed and stars you know, Tommy Wiseau. Uh, and also a man named Greg Sestero who um, wrote a book about it called The Disaster Artist. That's the book that the movie was based off of. So James Franco and Dave Franco played Tommy Wiseau and Greg Sestero. Uh, Greg Sestero. I don't know how you pronounce his name, so I'm just trying a, different, a bunch of different ones. Uh, and they all four of them went to the ceremony. And then James Franco won for Best Actor. And he invited Tommy Wiseau up to stage, and Tommy Wiseau tried to like grab the microphone and talk, and James Franco pushed him back. Uh, and I think he wanted to let him talk, but there just wasn't enough time. Um, and uh, Greg Sestero like sat there in, in his chair, like looking at the stage, and it just seemed like the most kind of bizarre, somewhat tragic moment that I've seen at one of these ceremonies in, in quite a while. Like this idea that. These guys, all they wanted to do was make it big in Hollywood. And when Hollywood told them no, they said to themselves, we're going to make our own movie. You know, they made their own movie. It was regarded as terrible. But then these other guys, James Franco and Dave Franco, made a movie about the making of that terrible film. And they're winning all this acclaim because of it. Um, it just felt to me like, man, I bet Greg, you know, probably has dreamed of him, like himself being on that stage. It must have just been a crazy moment. Uh, but Joy, what were you going to say? It sounded like this – you thought it was oh, weird and I, – I thought it was just a really douchey move to swat Tommy Wiseau, like physically block him from right, the mic. Well, on the one hand, I, you know, I have actually interviewed Tommy Wiseau and once he gets in front of a microphone, he can be quite unpredictable. So I think it's a – is like a solid move from a presentation standpoint. But you're right in that uh, – That's punching Frank way down. You know, like, it, it is not a good look for James Franco. And then add to that the fact that he is, like, hashtag problematic um, in terms of his personal history. I think there might be a story coming out about that. Um, and uh, that he imitated Tommy Wiseau's accent in his acceptance speech. It was like, this person over here is just an object. And I am, you know, it, it uh, not only robbed these other guys of agency, but it was a really ugly look, I thought. Yeah, it it was bad, especially because like James Franco wouldn't be up there were it not for Tommy Wiseau, right? I always find it weird when people go up and and they don't thank the people who they're based off. Although we should we should mention that uh, there was very mixed reaction to Allison Janney praising Tanya Harding uh, in the room as well as uh, online, and we'll we'll talk a little bit about that. Um, but. Uh, you know, people seem to be trying to like recast Tanya Harding in a in a different way now that this movie's out, uh, possibly for for marketing purposes. And I don't know that the internet's really taking it well. So, uh, looking forward to talking about that. But anyway, that's the Golden Globes. Anything else you guys want to mention about about the evening? I thought it was an overall pretty uh, eventful ceremony and uh, well worth conversation. So, 
yeah, um, for sure. All right. Before we get to our review of Itania, I want to shout out all the people that donated to the podcast this week. Uh, I want to thank Katarina Koltliar, I think, uh, who asks us to please watch the movie Faces Places. I've heard Faces Places very good. BJ Thomas, Michael Crowder, Christina Tobin, thank you so much for your donations to the podcast. Thanks also to new subscribers at the rate of $2 per month. Todd Baker, Celeste Benavides, Samuel George Mitchell, and Leanne Royo. Thanks so much for donating to the show. If you want to contribute to the podcast, go to SlashFilm.com, click on the SlashFilmCast tab, use the PayPal links on the side of the page. You can also go to PayPal.me slash FilmCast. That's PayPal.me slash the word FilmCast. Uh, and all the money you donate goes to helping us defray the cost of seeing movies and putting on this podcast for you. So thanks so much for your donations. Uh, let's get to our review of I, Tanya. 4.8. How do I get a fair shot here? We also judge on presentation. Can not even leave in the playing field? I know a guy shouldn't even be saying his name. Derek. The press wanted me to be the pile of crap. I never did this. What is going on? We're with the FBI. They know something. What can you tell us about Tonya Harding? I don't know a Tony Harding. <laughs> Aren't you her bodyguard? That was from the trailer for I, Tanya, the newest film by director Craig Gillespie. It was written by Stephen Rogers. I'm going to read the plot summary from IMDb. Competitive ice skater Tanya Harding rises amongst the ranks at the U.S. Figure Skating Championships, but her future in the activity is thrown into doubt when her ex-husband intervenes. Really, uh, really That's underselling what the ex-husband's involved That is a god-awful description. <laughs> My god. So, I mean, I think that the broad like, strokes... Like saying the, the OJ... The, it's like, uh, OJ Simpson's going about his life when strange occurrences get in the way. Like, and he uh, kicks a rye. Yeah. I think that uh, the overall events of I, Tanya are well known, but we will still divide this review into a non-spoiler and spoiler section. Uh, and... Joy, you are one of the biggest uh, figure skating nuts that I know. You really enjoy this sport, uh, Am and you I follow. The only one, though, to be fair, it is a sport with a fading fandom. Mm. Well, can, I would. I want to dig into that a little bit. You guys obviously know each other well. I don't, and I assume our audience doesn't as well. I want to know the roots of that before we even delve into the movie. What? How did you become a fan of figure skate? Did you figure skate yourself? How did you? Where did that come from? Now, I'm tragically bad on the ice myself. Um, I think that, uh, like, it, it actually mirrors what has happened nationally with figure skating, which is I had some interest in it. Then the Tanya and Nancy thing happened, and it was ubiquitous and unescapable, and I became a huge fan immediately oh, after that. So this, this is even, even more about the events of this movie. It's not just that you're a fan of figure skating, but this these events actually Yes, I remember these events extremely well. I have, like... VHS tapes that are like worn down from me watching them over and over because this this was the start of my real obsession with skating. And right after this whole thing happens, Tanya and Nancy get sent to the Olympics. And I think everybody knows that. But the first alternate is this uh, young woman named Michelle Kwan, who's only 13 at the time, who becomes this huge star and perhaps the best skater ever. Um, And I followed her career super intensely. And, you know, 
skating remained very popular in America pretty much as long as Michelle Kwan was skating. And since her retirement, it's been sort of on a steady decline. I think there was a pretty large judging scandal at the Salt Lake City Olympics regarding pairs figure skating that you guys may or may not remember that I think was really uh, also challenging to the credibility of the sport. And so... Yes, um, I remember it well. The great pairs figure skating fiasco of 19-whatever. No, I'm just joking. Lies. I don't know anything about it. I had to show it to you on YouTube. Um, but um, at this point, the the sport is in decline in a number of ways. You know, like the competitions get held in smaller venues. The ratings are down. The sponsorships are starting to get sort of embarrassingly small. Um, and so it's uh, an interesting time for us to be looking back at this. Right, because it used to be that if you were a gold medal figure skater, you know, Toyota or Coca-Cola or whatever would sponsor you or, or you know, would... Yeah, would sponsor you. You'd be in TV ads. Uh, you'd be rich just based off that. That's no longer really the case. Most people can't name a famous figure skater from the last few years, right? Uh, I think what I'm saying is that um, in America, it has particularly declined. That is actually still true in some other countries like Japan and South Korea. Mm. Um, but, you know, sports that are niche sports need stars. Tennis needs Serena Williams. And so... I'm the only one that remembers the Beatles. Hello, I'm Guy Garvey. Richard Curtis and Danny Boyle have joined forces for yesterday. We got them together to talk filmmaking. I always saw Trainspotting just as the Northern Four Weddings. Music. These songs were part of us. And a world without the Beatles. A world without the Beatles would be infinitely worse. The Yesterday Podcast, available from wherever you get your podcasts. Yesterday. When did you write that? I didn't write it. Paul McCartney wrote it. The Beatles. Who? Uh, we don't have that level of star really anywhere in the world um, for skating that kind of captures a broader audience than the folks who are the diehards. Yeah, I was just hearing today on NPR this, I guess, this Japanese male figure skater is... They Yuzuru say he's, Hanyu? Yeah, he's like as big as uh, LeBron James in Japan. He's like a massive star. He is incredible. He is really transcendent. But I would say, like, uh, I you you'd be challenged to find people who are not hardcore skating fans in America who know that name, right? Yeah, right. No, yeah, for sure. So, Joy, uh, since this was your lead-in into skating obsession, what did you think overall of the film? You know, it was in some ways hard for me to set aside my. Um, geeking out over tiny, amazing accuracies they had. Like they even nailed like what Tanya Harding's practice outfits look like from like these uh, soft focus, you know, features they would have about her on ABC Sports or whatever. Um, so I was really like fangirling over that stuff, um, but totally trying to set that aside. I actually think the movie is very good. Um, Allison Janney in her Golden Globes acceptance speech for Best Supporting Actress for this movie talked about how everybody has a different truth. And so that kind of goes to the theme of the night that we talked about earlier about speaking your truth and telling your story. Um, this is a story told from many perspectives, and it is laid out clearly from the beginning that there's not going to be one truth. Um, but I think that was probably the only way to tell a story that was quite as crazy as this. And I think it really worked. What did you guys think? Yeah, I mean, what do you do when you have a story where the the truth is only known by two to four people and all of those people are giving you a vastly different account of events? That is just very yeah. difficult to reconstruct. 
Right. We've we've heard the term unreliable narrator, but this is like a group of unreliable narrators. Right. <laughs> right. Uh, and so it's very difficult to reconcile those narratives. And this movie does it by uh, many different techniques. You know, it assembles its own version of the truth, but it also breaks the fourth wall. It shows flashbacks and has characters commenting on how truthful they might be. Uh, so it tries a lot of different things to, to tell this story. Um, I think, yeah, definitely the, the subjective nature of truth is one big message of it. Another message is this idea of uh, classism, right, within the, the skating ranks. This idea that mm-hmm. Tanya Harding was not uh, what these figure skating judges uh, wanted to elevate as the, uh, the standard bearer of their sport, uh, and because she came from a more challenging background than people like Nancy Kerrigan, uh, that she was punished for that because her style was different than uh, than other. I, I think you know I was watching Nanette Burstein's movie, uh, what is it, The Price of Gold, which actually Stephen Rogers, the screenwriter of this movie, was inspired to write this movie after watching that movie, or that was one of his inspirations or one of his pieces of research. And The Price um, of Gold is a documentary. Yeah, documentary, thirty for thirty documentary. Um, and it was, uh, it was. I think the the phrase was kind of like the girl next door with a hint of glamour. I think was what the uh, the saying was of, of what people were looking for in a in a figure skating champion. Like that, uh, that was the the ideal vision of that. And Tanya Harding did not live up to that, uh, and that that might have propelled some of her actions. But Jeff Kanata, what were your overall thoughts on this film? I came into it um, completely uninterested in the subject matter. As much as I admire the pure athleticism of figure skating, and I certainly uh, during Winter Olympic years can get caught up in watching some of it here and there. Uh, I'm just I'm not particularly interested as as Joy is, or even more more than that, more than figure skating as a sport. This particular time period I I have memory of living through. And it just felt like a tabloidy kind of trashy movie of the week topic Uh, that just didn't, I I didn't know the details, but I had a vague recollection of living through all of it. And it just, it wasn't something I was interested in, which is to say how uh, amazed I was that I came out of this movie completely riveted and uh, enjoying it and and enraptured by all the details. Uh, and and I think that is because the movie is so stylistically strong and all of those things we've talked about in regard to how the narrative pr- is presented, uh, the, the sort of speed and alacrity of, of how we move through these worlds and uh, the the movie is very slick. It feels like a Coen Brothers movie. Yes, uh, I thought it, that too. And I love that it like gets inside the the locality of these people and the sort of the, these very odd characters that are real people. They're real characters. I mean, um, Allison Janney is amazing, uh, and I think deserves the Golden Globe that she won last night. But I also loved, uh, you know, the other various idiots that we meet in this movie. Uh, Paul Walter Hauser is amazing as Sean. I mean, he's amazing and so fun and funny, and just the sort of the twists and turns, the the very the minutia of this, uh, you know, best laid plan by morons. It's very much, um, oh, what's that movie? Uh, 
a perfect plan. What's a that simple movie? plan? A simple Sam, plan. Sam Raimi's film, yeah. Yeah, it's so I, I good. Feel like this movie has the the tone and machinations of a Coen Brothers movie with the stylishness of a Martin Scorsese film. You know, like yes, in terms very of how much. it's very good, well, fellasy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Uh, in terms uh, of the soundtrack and the camera movement, it's very much like a like a Goodfellas or a Wolf of Wall Street or something, a casino. You know, something like that. One um, of the one of the triumphs of this movie, I think, is how the actual ice skating itself is shot. Completely. I'm not a huge fan of the head replacement that they did. I thought it was competent, but pretty, I could see the, the, you know, it was rough around the edges for me. Yeah. But I think if you actually shot uh, Olympic figure skating this way, you couldn't obviously, but if you could, Man, I would. I think it would be so much better the way the camera swoops in, and you clearly have someone on the ice with the skater, uh, you know, going in and out and around them in in almost a a dance in and of itself. I just thought it it would have been very easy to direct those sequences to look like how you see figure skating on television, and I thought it was brilliant that that's not what the movie does. That the movie presents it in a much more dynamic uh, cinematic way that totally worked. And I, I found myself going, man, I wish actual figure skate- skating was shot like this. Yeah, Joy, uh, as a figure skating connoisseur, how did you feel about the style of the skating sections? Well, there are two things that Jeff's comment provokes for me. The first is that I really admired that choice as well, to have the camera not only on the ice but moving around and lots of like um, focus on her face at the center of the frame Um, because normally uh, what we're used to on television is that the camera is far away looking down and you are judging this little person who's running around trying to land these really difficult jumps on this eighth inch you know uh, blade of steel and so by putting the camera down there, you are witnessing like the athleticism, you are hearing her panting and breathing because it's so difficult of an exertion for her. And you're really feeling from her point of view what it must feel like to know that these giant, you know, jumps are coming up. Um, the second thing that I, uh, this is a little bit of skating nerddom, but uh, you know, the triple axle that she lands and that they talk about at length in the movie is so difficult that very few women to this day, 20 or 26 years later, have landed it. And so uh, they could not find a female figure skater who could actually land the triple axle, who they could body double. And wow. so they had to do all kinds of editing tricks to get around it. They basically use either double axles or they cut away. Um, but I think that's just a testament to how incredible Tanya Harding's achievement really was. Huh. That is impressive. Wow. Yeah, I thought the skating sections were amazing. And uh, what's interesting, I mean, they did not make it easy on themselves. Do you know what I mean? Like he could have shot it. Uh, Craig Gillespie uh, could have shot it in such a way that made it easy to cut around. But it almost felt like the way he was shooting was uh, designed to make it as uh, thrilling and as challenging to shoot as possible. Like you said, Jeff, there are some scenes from the CG and the head replacement or however they did it. Uh, but they could have used a lot more cuts, and they didn't. A lot of these skating sequences take place in one long continuous shot, uh, and it's it's incredible to watch. So, uh, but yeah, I think every performance in this movie is fantastic. There's been a lot of commentary about 
this movie being very condescending to its subjects, you know, mocking uh, the people whom these actors are portraying. I did not feel that way. You know, I did not feel that they was mocking them. I felt like it portrayed them as fairly complex people um, who, uh, for one reason or, not, or another, were, were trapped in, in the situations that they had found themselves in, right? And whether it was by their own doing or, or some other cause, um, I found it to be a sympathetic portrait. Joy, what did you think? Did you feel like the movie was condescending towards Tanya Harding and Jeff Galuli? Um, I think maybe not. Maybe it's a little condescending to Sean, but that's going to be a tough one. If you go back and watch yeah, actual watch interviews actual he's given footage. to the news, yeah, it's very similar. they're pretty much verbatim. And um, he's a he's an odd duck, uh, to put it nicely. Um, he's a man who, for instance, continued to claim that he was like part of an international spy agency um, after this all occurred. Yeah, we're talking about Sean Eckhart, who is Tanya Harding's bodyguard in real life. Uh, and I, I mean, in fact, he was not her bodyguard, as far as I can tell. I mean, at least she said she he was not her bodyguard. And I can tell you, I've uh, covered many figure skating events myself. I have been backstage. There are no other skaters with bodyguards, no matter how famous they are. So it was an <laughs> odd choice to start off with. Um, but, you know, um, if anything, you know, to be honest, I think it was a little bit gentle on Tanya Harding. I think the goal is to make her not completely sympathetic, but at least relatable. Um, and so I think there could have been quite a lot more done that would have made her look clownish that they cut out. Yeah, I think the movie certainly makes takes the position that she is innocent of any wrongdoing, which I'm not sure is historically clear. I think it's ambiguous on uh, the the question of whether she, um, you know, had a role. Like, there, there you think some, the movie is? I think the the movie is a little bit. I mean, really? I think yeah. it's pretty clear that she, the movie thinks that she thinks they're dumb yeah, and I wish they right. had it I, I, you know i think you're right about that uh, there in the trailer and you know in the movie itself she she does say something along the lines of you know who would ever um like have a hit put out on their friend that's insane who would ever do that and it it, it reads as kind of mildly sarcastic to me you know what i mean right. like that but you're right like when you're you're watching the movie retell uh, the events, it seems pretty clear that the movie's belief is that she was not involved. Right. Um, Which I don't think is is absolutely uh, historically uh, clear. I've seen the sentiment a few places online that uh, this movie, I, Tanya, gives Tanya Harding the Marsha Clark treatment. Uh, that is to say, Marsha Clark basically was rehabilitated uh, by movies like the people uh, or uh, shows like uh, People versus O.J. Simpson, American Crime Story, uh, a, a character that was held up for ridicule by the American people was now getting her due, and certainly uh, Tanya Harding falls into the first half of that category, uh, where she was ridiculed by the American people. She was made a punchline uh, relentlessly over the course of many months. But unlike Marsha Clark, uh, Tanya Harding did not fight to put a murderer in jail. Uh, Tanya Harding was involved tangentially with this uh, situation where uh, a, another figure skater was assaulted. And that's something else people have brought up is that Nancy Kerrigan is almost completely absent from this film. You know, right. the victim is almost completely absent. Uh, and Joy, I was curious, like, what, what did you think of that decision to, to basically exclude Kerrigan's story from this movie? Um, well, firstly, I actually uh, think I disagree with you guys about whether this movie takes the point of view that she's completely innocent. If it's completely innocent versus completely guilty, I feel like it's 
innocent-ish, but leaves the door open with the pieces that you could make a case that she's guilty if you wanted to. Um, because I think that's partly the thread they're trying to portray with the fact that she's surrounded by people who are so violent. Hmm. Um, the uh, Nancy Kerrigan choice did not bother me at all. Um, I understand what people are saying, but it is, it is actually not a true crime story. Uh, although it sort of gets into heist territory towards the end uh, or that feeling of a heist film. Um, for me, what this is, is like, can you understand why Tanya Harding is the person she is, including that she may or may not have participated in this, um, either lightly or known about it and failed to prevent it or been all the way up to the mastermind. And I think the movie leaves room for all of that. So I, yeah, I think what I, you're I, saying is it wasn't – like it, the movie is trying to do one thing. It wasn't trying to tell the whole story of you know, Nancy Kerrigan and all that. And so because it was trying to do this one very specific thing, you, you're cool with Nancy Kerrigan not being a part of the story. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's not called I, Tanya, She, Nancy. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Indeed. Uh so it sounds like you know, all- at one point early in the movie, uh, Tanya Harding's character, played by Margot Robbie, says, Nancy gets hit one time and the whole world shits. For me, it's an all the time occurrence. And I feel like that's the point is that yeah. for her, like she's completely desensitized to this on some level to the point of callousness. Hmm. And I think that I think that is the movie building a defense for her uh, in a large right. sense. And yeah, and and. I don't have a problem with that. I, I just think it's hard to read this film as anything but uh, making her a sympathetic character that uh, was not a party to that kind of madness. Um, I think it's a more interesting film just sort of being from her point of view and not being swept up in that moment. Like the movie is about more than that moment. I think that stuff is is a relatively small percentage of the stuff we see. And I think for me, the far more interesting bits were – her relationship with her mother and how she grew up and the love story and the shocking violence that you see throughout her life, all that stuff I found to be really compelling. And, um, I think that's one of the reasons I liked the movie more than I expected to, because it didn't just focus on this sort of tabloid story. It really gave a larger, more interesting picture that I wasn't aware of. So Jeff, how did you react to the violence? Because one criticism I've seen of this movie that I don't personally share is that, um, that, that, sort of lighter Scorsese-like tone that's so stylish and the dark comedy kind of undercut the viciousness of the violence. Did you find that to be true? I did not. No, I found the violence to be really harrowing and rough. And and yeah, there is a sort of a stepping out a, a couple of moments uh, where the characters are like, I didn't do this or, you know, as it's happening. But I didn't feel like that stole from how, how it's presented is very jarring and very, uh, brutal. And, um, you know, you get a very deep sense that this is a, a a woman that went through some horrific things. Uh, and I didn't, I didn't think that stole it from it at all. For me, it it really, um, uh, I felt like the movie, I was impressed with how the movie didn't pull its punches. These were characters that looked like they were just brutalizing each other. And, uh, you know, that affected me as a viewer. Yeah, um, I think there's been uh, – I've seen some talk about how this movie in some ways minimizes uh, domestic violence, and I did, I did not feel that way at all. I felt like 
it depicts domestic violence as a really tragic cycle from which uh, it's difficult for, for women to extricate themselves. Um, what did you think of, of the film's depiction of domestic violence, Joy? Yeah, you know, I rewatched particularly with an eye toward this um, because I am sensitive to that uh, question mark, you know, being raised. And uh, it's true that like the first time she gets hit by Jeff Galuli, I mean, I don't think that's a spoiler, right? That in real life they had domestic violence issues. Mm. Um, she turns to the camera, breaks the fourth wall and says, you know, he hit me a lot and, and, and starts sort of, and that is a big tone shift, but there is a climactic or not a climactic, but probably the worst incidence of domestic violence um, happens a little bit later and there's no music. There's no breaking of the fourth wall. It feels a lot more like the camera is objectively in the room. And perhaps you guys remember the moment that I'm talking about. Um, and my uh, heart just broke for her. And it was awful and devastating to think that someone you love and trust and whose approval you want so badly could hurt you so casually. Um, and then it cuts to her mother saying, you know, like, oh, this wasn't a big deal. Oh, please. You know, and so you do get the sense for me, at least at my experience of the movie was, um, I really got the horror of it. And then I got, uh, that someone thinks that's not a big deal. And that's like an important piece of the story is people's attitudes towards it. Mm. And that doesn't mean that the filmmakers agree with that lightness of attitude. The thing that movie I think does really, really well, and you almost never see in films is this sense that this was an everyday thing for her. This was just part of her life. So often in movies, even movies that deal with this kind of thing, it, it feels like this climactic moment or a couple of big outbursts that you see dramatically depicted uh, on screen. And in I, Tonya, you really get the sense that she's just going about her life, getting the crap kicked out of her day in and day, day out. And, and that to me is even more heartbreaking and heart-wrenching because – I mean, there are all these scenes of her like just putting on makeup to cover up her bruises today and going about her day. It's like it becomes so pedestrian that it's almost more horrific. Yeah, yeah, like that's the baseline that's laid. Right. Yeah, I, I agree. I thought the way that the film treated it, um, it, it feels casual. Like it felt casual in the sense that it wanted you to understand that it was casual and that that is horrifying. You know, not like right. the film is treating it casually, right. um, but that the, the violence itself was casual. It, you, that you can get used to anything, and yeah. these people did, and it's and that's just unbelievable. I think the other thing, though, about the violence is you can see these are incredibly strong personalities at play, and um, you can see why they are drawn to each other like magnets and then pushed apart as if the magnets, you know, poles were reversed. And like um, they're constantly kind of wanting things from each other that are impossible. And it creates this real pressure cooker of a situation that ultimately, for extremely ill-advised reasons, explodes into this sort of national story. But even prior to that was just constant chaos um, between all of them. All right. Well, uh all that said, it sounds like we all uh, really enjoyed the movie. I put it as my number two movie of 2017, um, and Jeff and Joy really liked it as well. But we have a few more things to say about it in spoilers, so why don't we get to spoilers for I, Tanya starting right now. Now you're looking for the secret. You're going to see this coming? No. But you won't find it because, of course... You're not going to see this coming. You're not really looking. I have been puzzling over how it works. You don't really want to work it out. Who's in the box? I have been... Dying to tell you. I want to tell you my secret. You want to be 
food. The only moment I want to highlight from the end of this movie is the moment uh, between Allison Janney's character, who plays Tanya Harding's mom, and Tanya Harding uh, at the end with the tape recorder. Yeah, uh, I, I like. I practically want to cry just thinking about. Yeah, that. yeah, it's a very tragic moment, and um, it, it's also like an ambiguous moment. I think because I think a lot of people interpret it as uh, that Allison Janney's character is. Uh, lying to get the the piece of tape that she's looking for, but in fact, uh, I, I listened to an interview with uh, the writer and and the way that they played it or the way that she was trying to play it was the idea that she you know she was telling the truth that there was another side to Tanya Harding's mom uh, where like she actually appreciated and rooted for her daughter on some level. Um, and that was one of the biggest conflicts of the movie that I found to be really compelling was this idea of this mom being this kind of toxic figure who nonetheless was able to motivate her child um, to do great things. I, I mean, I think that's um, reminds me of other movies that bring this dynamic up, like, for example, Whiplash, the Damien Chazelle movie, uh, yeah. where you have a teacher who is extremely emotionally and sometimes physically abusive – um, and does so under the guise of wanting to bring out greatness from their student. Uh, and the mo- both movies kind of leave open the question, is it worth it? Um, it's I, a big I, theme of Molly's game as well this year. Yeah, I, 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 and I don't think they necessarily come to a conclusion on that question. I don't think, like, when I, I mean, I, I guess I, I guess Itania comes to more of a conclusion about it because it's hard to look at this and think to yourself, well, it was a good thing that Alison Janney treated uh, Tanya uh, Harding's character that way, you know? But on the other hand, um, if Tanya Harding's mom had not been so challenging, like would uh, Tanya Harding have achieved that level of greatness? Uh, It's not a clear answer to me. You know, like the the, the answer to that question is not clear. There's a, there's an old um, Mr. Show sketch that I love. It's it's very dark, but uh, the idea is there's this service that parents can can go to that will teach them how to abuse their kids in just the right ways to turn them into great artists or <laughs> achievers in, in different ways, you know. And it's played for laughs, but I think the themes are, are basically the same is, you know, these monsters that get results because they are so demanding and so uh, punishing to their kids <laughs> – did the ends justify the means? I think from the perspective of Alice and Janney's character, absolutely. Like she thinks she gave, as she says explicitly, I gave you the best gift I could have given you. Right. Uh, I, I, I hardened you, you know? Yeah. Jo- Joy, what do you, what do you think of the notion that, uh, that there needs to be some level of emotional abuse or emotional stress to become as great as some of these people are? Like, are you, do you feel like, yeah, it is, it is essential that that's part of your training? Or do you feel like it's, it should never be part of training, that people can still be great without that? Um, you know, I don't know that I'm sufficiently expert to weigh in on motivational techniques and parenting um, since I'm not a parent. But I will say that I actually think Alice and Janney's character is quite a bit more complicated than just I'm going to shame you into being better. Um, she, it's lightly mentioned, but Tanya Harding is like the fourth or fifth of her children. And she gets married five or six times in total. And yet with no resources at all, she is still driving her to practice. She is still 
taking her somewhere in a sport where the chances that you succeed are basically statistically zero, no matter how talented you are. I actually um, wish we had seen more of that. I, I was really sad that they was kind of glossed over. Like, why is this horrible woman even doing this? What like the, I think her childhood. I would have liked actually a little more time spent there to understand how this how this even became a thing. Yeah, the, it, you know, the it, dynamic is very single faceted. It feels like. Um, when you compare, you know, to another movie this year, Lady Bird, that features a much richer portrait of a, a mother's relationship with her daughter, this feels uh, often uh, like a self-parody almost in terms of how one-sided at least that relationship was. Not necessarily that character, but Joe, go ahead. Oh, well, it's it's just a testament, I think, partly to Alice and Janney's performance that she is just so riveting to watch. And all she does is monstrous stuff. And yet she's the person I want to watch the most of and want to spend two hours with afterwards. Um, that she has this sort of charisma that she bullies her way, essentially, on behalf of her child, uh, bullies their way into Tanya getting skating lessons at such a young age. And like that has to be a form of care, right? And so you could see that Tanya at at some level knows that she's very heavily invested in and that is a form of love, but she's never going to get a kind word, a warm gesture, the other forms of love that like all children need. And so um, you can see why she's still wanting it so badly from her mother throughout the movie and, and tries to replace that with the abusive love she gets from Jeff Galuli um, and, and why that would feel like an upgrade to her um, to feel desired and to be told outright that she's pretty when, you know, her mother only has harsh words for her. So um, I, I don't know. I, I actually felt that her mother uh, is it possible to love someone and also to be a monster? I think it is possible. And I really appreciated uh, the portrayal for showing that. Let's talk a little bit about verisimilitude. Uh, Joy, earlier you brought up that there were some things in the movie that you felt really excited about that they got correct. Uh, anything else in the movie yeah, that you so- want to mention? I'm actually I'm, I'm happy to like rattle through several of them, but Jeff. So Jeff, for you, you came to this as a lay viewer, and I could see all the effort that they put in to nail even these tiny details. But to you, did it have the ring of truth, despite this kind of lighter and occasionally even campier tone? Uh, I have to admit, the movie felt a little cartoonish at times, um, and I think a lot of that has to do with. Uh, we we spend a, a fair amount of time with our lead characters when they are in their teens and they are still played by people that are clearly in their late 20s, early 30s. Yeah. And the things they do to make them teenagery are fine. They're fine. But I think it, it places the movie into um, a little exaggerated place for me. It reminded uh, me of Walk Hard, to be honest. The, yeah. Uh, Dewey Cox. The parody. Uh, the parody <laughs> where, where John C. Riley plays the high school version of himself. Uh, right. Because <laughs> that's what they do often in these biopics is they have this – like I, I almost thought it was a joke – but it ends up being a significant part of the film. Like I thought it would be like they flash back to it for maybe one scene, but it was, you know, no. Right. Margot Robbie's playing fifteen-year-old Tanya Harding for a significant part of part of time. So, and that's fine. And I think it actually marries really well with this sort of stylized presentation of everything, with the the long takes and the and the you know uh, breaking the fourth wall and all of that stuff that is having fun with narrative. Like I. I'm in it for that. I'm I'm having a great time, uh, but it didn't. 
it didn't make me feel like, oh man, this is, you know, documentary level authenticity of this moment. But I did, I will, I will say the other side of that coin is that I really did enjoy finding out all these crazy details that I never bothered to know, even as I was living through it, because I wasn't particularly interested in it. Um, but like all of the, the details of how everything went down and who was doing what and where and all that stuff I found to be much more interestingly presented than I thought was possible. So, you know, I, I liked the level of minutiae and detail there that was present. I just, I didn't, it didn't occur to me that it was like, Oh man, this is all super authentic because it felt so stylized. Yeah. I think that's one of the things that to me is almost shocking about the movie is you, you really would not believe that this is possible. You wouldn't believe that somebody would move his car every 15 minutes. I think in reality it was 30, but like in a parking lot to avoid being observed, like how stupid can this person possibly be? Um, And yet that actually did happen. You wouldn't believe he could run through a window of plate glass on, or a, you know, door of glass on his way trying to escape. But he did also in fact do that. Well, especially Um, because he had like this baton that he could have used to hit the glass, for instance, you know, like there's, there's little weird details like that, but yeah, what what were some of the biggest details that that uh, stuck out to you, Joy? Well, number one, um, almost everything she wears is like a shockingly accurate replica of things she actually wore. So maybe they say it's the 1991 competition and she wore it in 1992, but like these are um, slavishly recreated, and this is true for her rather famous on ice skating outfits, but also for the stuff she's wearing when she's like walking around the neighborhood or what her hairstyles look like. Um, As she gets a little bit better uh, results, she starts having some kind of designer accessories and they put those in. And I felt like it was really telling the story um, of it it is in some ways, I admit a slightly tacky sport and a little bit about um, What you, you know, the image you're trying to project and sort of her awkward attempts as someone who isn't from that world to fit in, um, I think really came through. Uh, She did really skate to ZZ Top, although not in the way that they show it. Um, And, uh, you know, I think they do a really good job of recreating that problem she had at the Olympics. So I don't know if that's something you guys might remember, but she has a problem with her skate lace at the Olympics after Nancy Kerrigan. Right. Um, when we watched this, you had mentioned you had mentioned that this was a woman where drama seemed to follow her, right? That uh, no no one had ever had a problem like that before, or, or it was extremely extremely rare. Yes. Right? So this is where the verisimilitude for me is like a little bit lacking. Prior to this incident, Tanya Harding was known as a person who had just an insane slew of problems, none of which were ever her fault. And so they do have one of these um, that they mention in the movie where it's like, oh, she fails on a triple axle. And she's like, well, my skate blade wasn't mounted well. And see, that wasn't my fault. And so you do get the sense that she's a defensive and evasive person. Um, But that did, in fact, happen. But then prior to that, she had another issue where like her dress came partly unhooked uh, during nationals. There was another time uh, that she was skating and like her skate blade wasn't, you know, firmly attached. And she stops in the middle, goes off to the side and says, like, can I get a screwdriver in the middle of her performance and reaffixes the screw to her own boot and then keeps skating? Does quite badly. Um, 
in the end. And so it was like really unsurprising that, oh, she was the person that needed a do-over. She's the one that needed an exception. In all my time watching skating, I don't think I have ever seen one incident like this with any other skater. And it just always... Let alone like multiple for one skater, right? Yeah. And, you know, like they show her firing her coach and then the coach and her reuniting. Well, in fact, she fired her coach, then she went back to her and then she fired her coach again. And then she like it was all within like two or three years at the height of her um, performance. She had this really terrible attitude of entitlement um, that made her really difficult. And people didn't hold her rags to riches story against her. If anything, in my view, they were rooting for her. And so it is... um, all of that, I think, gets kind of smoothed yeah, the, over the quite film, a bit. Yeah, the film does get at that a little bit. But, I, you know, in the instance of her and the skate breaking down, your sympathy is with her. You know, it, it, the movie makes it out like, oh, this woman who's in the situation that she can't help. Poor Tanya Harding, right? Uh, yeah, but how many times can lightning strike one person? Right, exactly. So either she's ex- just ex- – maybe. I mean, I, I think the, the movie seems to posit she's just extremely unlucky. Right. That, that seems to be what the movie's positing. And I think what you're saying as an observer of this uh, sport is uh, it beggars belief that someone could be that unlucky in real life. Uh, right. Because of a lot of stuff that doesn't even make it into the movie. But another place I think they show her not taking full responsibility is that she has asthma and she smokes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> See, this is this is why I think the movie is squarely in her court and. Uh, to mix my sports metaphors, uh, <laughs> it's squarely on her side. I think. I think um, maybe your knowledge of her as a person uh, gives you a, a deeper reservoir of information through which to watch the movie. But but it may color my perception. It too. may. I think it may because I, what I got from it is is a purely sympathetic right. telling of uh, you know of of Tanya Harding's uh, sad tale of being. Um, you know, in the wrong place at the wrong time with the wrong people who always mistreated her. Uh, and, and yeah, I mean, she's culpable for sort of, you know, being around them, but it, it really does seem like it, it is her, uh, sympathetic to her plight, I think, from, from the entire film. I think there are hints of what Joy is talking about in the interview segments uh, that the movie cuts between, right? That you see interviews with like a recreated interview with modern day Tanya Harding where she consistently denies culpability for anything that happens to her so you kind of get a taste of it but you're right yeah I think think, you're right yeah uh, but I think you're right yeah that overall the movie makes it out like Tanya Harding was the the unfortunate recipient of this you know she she got dealt a bad hand and you know that's what the movie's about so uh it's it's I think if there's one thing to take away from this spoiler section for I Tanya that you're listening to right now it's complicated. It's complicated. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, so. I mean, I think the movie is – basically what I got from it, Joy, was that the movie said like this underdog who finally got herself into this position because she tried She tried to get out of this relationship and this guy was such a nutball. He did this stupid thing and she was right about to be in this place <laughs> where she could finally beat the girl who had been – you know trouncing her and all these she'd fight she was at the top of her game she was finally coming back and if it wasn't for this idiot boyfriend who did this crazy thing she may you know that's how i feel like the movie frames that situation but i don't know if that's accurate yeah how accurate events. do you feel that is I, I agree with you that that's how the movie frames it and uh joy how accurate do you think that is wow um 
Yeah, I think you're right that I can't divorce my knowledge of the facts, which is that she had a season where she landed several triple axles and it was amazing. And then she started to go downhill from there. So it wasn't that she wasn't relevant or that she didn't have a shot. Uh, she skated badly at the Olympics. I think she ended up eighth. Um, you know, she um, w- had been written off a little bit as a little past her prime. And so... Um, and, and in skating, that can happen in one year or two years because it's such a sport for, you know, little baby ballerinas. But, um, you know, I don't think that you're right that uh, this maybe being her last gasp, um, there was an air of desperation about her whole quasi comeback that year to me uh, that maybe doesn't quite come through in this. Uh, but to me, you know, I think she does come across as tough, but brittle and funny and plain spoken and just like a woman you feel like you know from other parts of your life and uh you can kind of see how her environment you know um would have set her up to be capable of these monstrous things but that she herself still seems like a child at heart I think is is kind of how it like almost an arrested development thing is how it played to me in the movie mm-hmm. all right um, well, those are some more facts uh, on the Tanya Harding situation. And uh, watch the movie, uh, watch the documentary. There's actually a bunch of YouTube content. Some person went back and assembled like all the footage of the entire story uh, from news clips uh, on YouTube, which I've found very instructive. So I'd recommend that. It's like, the- isn't it amazing that in that time we had like hard copy and there's like a reporter from hard copy that's interviewed for this film. And, you know, just seeing that title, which doesn't exist anymore, I guess hard copy as a show just brought me back to that nineties, OJ Simpson, uh, just the advent of tabloids. And before we had reality TV, like this was our advent of reality television. Yeah. Um, and it just anchored me in such a, I mean, this thing is a period piece, right? So yeah. uh, I, I think it is also an interesting reflection on how fame and celebrity and that uh, ravenous desire for a certain kind of uh, very simplified story uh, can really ruin people's lives overnight. And not to say that that isn't true today. Um, oh, it in, is. Uh, but it has a, a different sort of tenor today, too. Well, I think uh, I, one thing that's different today is just the the life cycle is so much shorter today, in my opinion. Yeah. Uh, I just think the Tanya Harding, Nancy Kerrigan thing was many, many, many months. You know, uh, it went on night after night of Letterman and Leno like ridiculing this person. And I just don't feel like the half-life is as long today. I feel like that that whole story would be done in one week tops and we'd have moved on to something else. Um, but that's just yeah, my opinion. For sure. I, I, I agree with you guys, but I also feel like uh, uh, Bobby Cannavale, who's in this, it's just weird that they even have this character in this movie. Like I, I appreciate what you're saying, Joy, and I agree that it's it's crazy to be like set in this time period and and – remember how journalism was working at that time. But also it's just a bizarre thing to just have this character there for the interview segments, but you never see him in the movie. I don't know. Just yeah, all it's almost that. like they, they were trying to create it like a doc. They were trying to make it like seem like a documentary, right? Yeah. Um, but he's the only character like that. And it's, 
it's just strange. Like, why do we care about this dude's input? Right. I don't know. It was, it was odd. Right. Right. It felt like maybe, maybe he's the stand-in for all those like reporters who are on their lawns after the yeah event, for sure right? yeah. But I think you're right. The film's reach maybe exceeded its grasp a little bit with regards to that character and the point they're trying to make there. I mean, I thought I thought the point was made, you know, beautifully in the film itself. You don't need the interviews of that guy. Right. But, um, anyway, uh, that's our review of I Tanya. Find more episodes of this podcast and more reviews at SlashFilmCast.com. Email us at SlashFilmCast.com. Our spoiler bumper comes from filmmaker Kyle Hillinger. Our theme song comes from AdamWarrock.com. Stay tuned to hear what we'll be reviewing next week. In the meantime, Jeff Kanata, where can I find more of your work on the internet this week? Oh, you can always follow me on Twitter, at Jeff Kanata, which is spelled with two N's and one T. Uh, I have several other shows, including video game shows. If you're into video games... I have a long-form show called DLC that you can find at 5x5.tv slash DLC. I have a daily uh, quick update video game show. So if you want to get your news about video games in an easily digestible format, check out Newest, Latest, Best. It's on iTunes and anywhere you find uh, podcasts. Or you can find it at anchor.fm slash NLB. And I also do We Have Concerns which is a comedy science show, you can find it at wehaveconcerns.com. If you enjoyed uh, Joy of Napping's uh, work on this podcast today, find her at Joy of Napping on Twitter. You can also find me on Twitter at Dave Chensky. That's Dave Chen, S-K-Y, and DaveChen.net. Next week... And we we didn't argue once about The Last Jedi. Mm, Not once. It's awesome. It's amazing. <laughs> you, you just you just gave people reason to hate this episode, Jeff. Um, but uh, next week we'll be talking about Black Mirror season four. Uh, Black Mirror season four will be uh, diving in depth with spoilers into every single episode. So if you want to uh, listen to next week's episode, watch Black Mirror season four on Netflix right now. Uh, so much to discuss about Black six wow. episodes. You can do it six episodes. That's yeah. not too much to ask. Yeah. yeah. Um, and I think it's worth getting through them. I, I, Definitely. I overall enjoyed the season. Jeff, how, do you watch them already? Uh, I have two more to go, um, but I am uh, I'm very much – I love Black Mirror, and uh, I am very much enjoying it this season as well. All right. Thanks for listening to the official podcast of SlashFilm.com. We'll see you next week. Hello, I'm Guy Garvey. Richard Curtis and Danny Boyle have joined forces for yesterday. We got them together to talk filmmaking. I always saw Trainspotting just as the Northern Four Weddings. Music. These songs were part of us. And a world without the Beatles. A world without the Beatles would be infinitely worse. The Yesterday Podcast, available from wherever you get your podcasts. Yesterday. When did you write that? I didn't write it. Paul McCartney wrote it. The Beatles. Who? Selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage, all the way to do we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify's there to help you grow. 
Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. From their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system, wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. And sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. And Shopify's the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Plus, Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash audioboom, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash audioboom now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash audioboom. <laughs> 